RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Wednesday morning, it's time for our Legal Hub program, and Nick Kearney flying solo this morning. Katie's off doing something else. And Nick, uh, good to see you and hear from you again. Morning, Paul. Uh, Good morning to uh, everybody listening. It's a target-rich environment this morning. Nick, where do you want to start? Well, I thought, uh, you know, we've got an election coming up in uh, four weeks or so, so we could start with an, uh, a topic that deals with election law, uh, essentially, and we've seen during the week um, a bit of a failure by a political party to follow the rules surrounding uh, filing of the party list in time uh, and using the proper procedure uh, in order to get their list uh, approved by the Electoral Commission. So um, the Electoral Commission or elections in general are governed heavily by by the Electoral Act uh, and uh, the Electoral Act sets uh, deadlines and timelines by which uh, things must be done uh, in an election. It starts off by actually saying what the latest date the election uh, can be in an election year and generally at the start of the year the Prime Minister will uh, know that date and will you know, work towards that date and announce the, the, the date that they want it to be based on their own political program, basically. Uh, but the date, the date is essentially, the latest date is essentially fixed. And then uh, from from then on, uh, well, I say the Prime Minister uh, announces the date. Uh, three months before that, uh, the regulation period for advertising uh, starts where, you know, you've seen all the advertising that parties have to do has to be authorised by uh, by somebody authorised by party secretaries and what have you. Uh, a parliament dissolves uh, on a certain day. Uh, this year was, uh, I think, Friday the 8th of September. So that's the dissolution of parliament in New Zealand. And so they can all go out and campaign. That's a legal, that is a legal uh, requirement uh, as well. There's what's called um, uh, RIT, W-R-I-T, RIT Day. And RIT Day is where the Governor-General uh, issues a formal direction uh, to the Electoral Commission to hold the election uh, and and anyone uh, enrolling to vote uh, after writ day uh, can only cast a special vote. So if you're right. not on the electoral roll by writ day, you you can only cast a special vote. There's not many, generally many too many of those. I think maybe you know five percent or ten percent of the population, but uh, they don't get uh, an ordinary vote after writ day, which was 10 September this year. You get a special vote. And the other critical date is. Um, the uh, nominations uh, close for candidates uh, and uh, the the parties are required uh, to file their lists with the Electoral Commission. Uh, and this year was by noon on Friday the 15th of September. And that's a fairly uh, detailed process that parties have to go through and what they have to do. Um, and it's governed by Section, I think, 127 of the Electoral Act. Uh, they the list must uh, and it, some of it goes without saying I suppose um, list the candidates in order of preference set out contact details of each candidate the sec- party secretary must uh, file a statutory declaration that each candidate is qualified to be a candidate you know New Zealand citizen and they're over eighteen and the like um, and, and a couple of other things um, the the as I say the list then must be delivered formally to the Electoral Commission by noon on Friday, must be accompanied by uh, a $1,000 um, deposit, yep. um, et cetera. And, uh, and in conjunction with filing filing that list, the the candidates are required 
to uh, file a statement uh, that they sign confirming that they consent to be a candidate uh, at the election and to be a candidate uh, on that party's list. So, you know, it's, it, for obvious reasons, it's it's reasonably formal uh, and there are strict rules to apply. And these dates and timeframes are very strict. Um, there's no there's no leeway from the Electoral Commission really at all. And I remember, you know, I was, um, for my sins in my past life, I was the party secretary of a political party here in New Zealand. And, uh, you know, I went through two of these. I, I was a party secretary for two elections. And I can tell you, uh, the week or two leading up to uh, and uh, the day that you file your list, uh, certainly the last week, uh, you are double checking, triple checking, and everything. You've got every bit of paperwork you need. You've got your candidate nominations. You've got they've all been signed. They all agree to be candidates. You've got the list ordered. You've got the secretary, party secretary, done their stat declaration. It's sitting you know, there, just you know, basically double checked, triple checked. Your thousand dollars is ready. And what we used to do. Um, uh, what we used to do. In fact, you can file these lists electronically if you like, but we, in fact, uh, used to fl uh, fly down to to Wellington because our head office was in Auckland. We would fly down to Wellington uh, on the day before, stay the night, and walk into the Electoral Commission, give them the list about uh, 11 o'clock, make sure that uh, everything was ticked off uh, and uh, it was all kosher and gave them the $1,000. Just to be doubly sure, we weren't you know, mucking things up. And unfortunately... Um, you know, uh, a party uh, this year has not made a very good attempt at doing any of that, and um, uh, and they, despite showing, I think fourteen or fifteen um, electric candidates throughout the country, only three appear on their list, and I, I don't, I mean, I don't know why that's happened, um, but um, you know, they've obviously made a bit of a monumental stuff up. Whether they thought they could edit the list later on or whether they didn't have the, the candidate nomination acceptances filled out or, or what, I don't know. But, um, yeah, so that's, that's so, what happened. So the, the party is NZ loyal, obviously, and so there's no rewinding on that. Once you pass the, the threshold date of that having to be signed, sealed, delivered, and like you say, you turned up physically with the $1,000 check, that's it, right? There's no going back. There's no, there's no going back. They can't go back. Timelines are there for a reason. They're, you know, they're, they're, um, uh, there's a, yeah, basically a strict process. And the wording used in, in the legislation is the party secretary must, by this date, do this. Um, you know, I, 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 there could potentially be an avenue where you could apply possibly to the High Court. Uh, to file out of time and seek leave to to file out of time. What if the online way of doing it was a bit ambiguous, a bit loosey goosey, or wasn't intuitive? Because that does happen. Uh, sure, and, and that's why you know I was involved in, in the political party I was involved in. That's why we never took that risk, and we we put we put the list and all the documents in, in a, literally in a briefcase, flew down to Wellington the night before, stayed the night, and and turned up to the electoral commission on the day. Uh, we went on a risk. You can post it if you want. It says actually in the, in the legislation, you can you can put the uh, list in, in the mail uh, or by courier with the check, or we'll make an electronic deposit these days, I suppose. But of course, you know you run the risk then of of um, the, the list going missing or not arriving on time, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So this is you know I mean the, the thing about it, Paul, is that these parties and these candidates um, and and the MPs that they work their butts off for for three years to get to this position. To actually be able to, you know, put the names forward again to campaign to try and get into government and into parliament and what have you, 
Um, and you don't want to be a person, a party secretary, who takes their responsibilities a bit flippantly and ends up potentially costing some people their jobs. And I take it that um, if, you know, let's say there was a threshold met and there were some, you know, seats in Parliament waiting, you only have a limit of the number who are on the document that you could deploy into Parliament. Is that how that would work? Yeah. I know it's a bit of a clumsy way of asking it, but I think... Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly how that works. They have three on their list, and uh, if they got, you know, uh, 5% of the party vote, uh, and but no electorate seats, uh, they'd be entitled to six MPs, but they've only got three on their list. Okay, how well. And, and please don't ask me what would happen to the other three, because I don't know. Okay, you live and you learn, I guess. Yeah, um, and look, I, and I got to say, I, I genuinely a little bit feel sorry for them because small parties are really, really up against it in, in this country. That the two big parties dominate everything, or maybe top three or four potentially, including broadcasting, advertising, allocations, which we've discussed in the past and sometimes it can be a little bit like herding cats with these small parties uh, and trying to get things coordinated and you've got to read the law know someone who understands the law with your party secretary and if you haven't done it before there's a big trap for um young players okay all right we've talked before about uh well i think nigel farage was a discussion point a few programs ago when he was debanked and i think we were even riffing on could that happen here well what's happened has happened to a religious organisation, Gloria Vale. And what's happened is, um, if you remember some months ago, there were some uh, media articles around some uh, people who, uh, I guess, worked, if that's the way to put it, at Gloria Vale, and they claimed they were employees and, and they took Gloria Vale to the Employment Tribunal and said we were employees, we weren't paid. Uh, I think Gloria Vale's argument was you weren't employees or something, volunteers or whatever, Um these people apparently worked there from the age of, of um, six years old. Uh, they won their case, and following that, um, BNZ wrote to Gloria, obviously Gloria Vale banked with BNZ, and uh, BNZ wrote to Gloria Vale and said, we're cancelling your accounts with us. You've got 30 days to um, to find other bank accounts. So it says here in the, in the ruling, Gloria Vale is comprised of 16 entities in other words, 16, you know, companies or trusts or what have you, um, charitable organisations perhaps, and has a total of 83 bank accounts across all of its businesses and entities with BNZ. Wow. Okay, that's quite a significant customer of this right there. Yeah, it is, yeah. So BNZ terminated the relationship on 6 July 2022, actually, so more than a year ago, uh, in reliance on Clause 8.2 of the contract because of what it claimed were human rights breaches by uh, Gloria Vale. BNZ gave Gloria Vale three months to find alternative banking uh, arrangements, and they wrote a letter. Uh, Clause 8.2 says, BNZ can close your account or end any other product or service or immediately suspend or restrict the operation of your account or the provision of any other product or service for any reason whatsoever. Gee, okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and then it goes on to give examples of conduct that may give rise to a reason for BNZ to terminate um, an account. Uh, but the terms of, of 8.2 also say that the examples given uh, are without limiting the reasons why BNZ might close or choose to suspend an account. So very broad. And uh, so th- what they did was, you know, they because of the employee situation, they just got, they, they thought that um, the 
employment situation uh, of these people at Gloria Vale with um, breached BNZ's group human rights policy. Uh, and so close the account. So Gloria Vale reacted uh, by uh, by suing BNZ uh, and um, they've got three causes of action and the causes of action are breach of contract, breach of fiduciary duty, which is a duty of trust and confidence and that somebody has to another and estoppel by convention. Estoppel is uh, an argument that you 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 ask you can't do what you're doing because you have condoned kind of the actions or something similar like that. So or we have we have gone forward and acted to our detriment based on your decision making previously, and therefore you are barred or prevented from now taking action. So uh, they've done that. Uh, the this this case particularly here was only an injunction hearing by Gloria Vale, which is. An injunction is an interim remedy by the party who is suing to uh, stop the action being taken prior to the hearing being determined. So Gloria Vale went to the court and said, well, hang on a sec, a hearing could be two years away. Can we please ask the court to allow us to have banking facilities with BNZ until the final determination of the hearing and whenever that might be in a year or two's time? Uh, and BNZ uh, lost. So Gloria Vale basically won. So the court here, the high court here, has upheld uh, Gloria Vale's rights to, um, to or they've upheld the injunction application and granted an injunction preventing BNZ from closing the accounts uh, until uh, the hearing has been determined. Okay, but um, still they're vulnerable, right? Uh, you just don't know how that hearing will uh, turn out. And then good luck, I'm imagining, getting banking from anywhere after that. Well, the decision actually says, the injunction decision that Gloria Vale applied to every other trading bank without success. There you go. So, yeah, yeah. and that's exactly what happened with Nigel Farage, if you remember, over in the UK. And that could happen to any of us. Well, if you breach BNZ's or any other bank's uh, human group, human rights policy, whatever that might be, uh, and, and you're assumed by by opening an account, you you know, you probably tick a box that says I've read your terms and conditions or something. Uh, you are assumed to have consented or agreed to all of those policies that BNZ has. I guarantee no one's ever read them. I certainly haven't. Uh, so well, yeah, I haven't uh, either. Yeah, no, and we need we banking. This, this is heading for a car crash at some point. Uh, it needs legislation, Paul. I think. Like ASAP. I think so. Hundred percent. Because what happens when you've got a whole lot of people who don't have any banking facilities, can't do any electronic transfers, walking around? With nothing, I mean that's a that's a that's a terrible brew potentially. That argument that said without the court granting this injunction, um, that payments out of the bank towards the community's most basic functions, medical care, rates, food, clothing, uh, and the like, uh, is completely jeopardised. Well, if you want to destroy Gloravale, that's a way of doing it, right? Oh, well, not just Gloravale. Um, no, but in this case, they, they, yes. they do seem to have their, you know, the, their people who are always at them. I mean, I have no clue, but it just does seem to be that way. Yeah, I mean, but but you've got to. Uh, I mean, you've well, well, of course, and, and but but really, is that up? Is that up to a bank to decide? No, actually. We, we, we should be making an arbitrary decision here to destroy these people because we don't believe in what they are doing, okay? Yeah, um, what, what it, business is it of theirs? Well, that's 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 kind of my view as well, to, to be honest, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, uh, but on the, other, on the other hand, you know, people, uh, there is a, there is a, a legal term of, of, of freedom of contract and 
you know, people sign contracts um, willingly, and if the contract says you won't do this or if you partake in this sort of behaviour, then we can just terminate the contract. And you know, there, there is that side of it, um, obviously, as well. Oh, yeah, uh, that, that's the case. But if you are... Uh, but, up... but this is an essential service, an absolutely yeah, and, essential service. And if you end up with, with no one banking you, um, then, you know, big problem. Okay, we'll get to yeah. our main our main topic in just a moment, and that is uh, OIA's uh, around the yeah, Speak Out sure. for Women event at Albert Park. There's a couple more I want to get to. Quickly, Health Ministry has released a summary, a basic summary of COVID vaccine contracts after 17 complaints to the Ombudsman. We talked about the South African Pfizer contract, well, a part of it anyway, that's been made public uh, by the uh, court in South Africa. We were commenting on that, and quite a few people responded to what we talked about last week about that. So yeah. what do we know just briefly, what do we know about what the Ombudsman has been saying? Well, 17, there were 17 complaints, or I guess that's the way to put it, 17 complaints here in New Zealand to the Ombudsman in relation to um, OIO applications to release the Pfizer contract. Uh, and uh, the Ombudsman has said that the contract um, can't be can't be released. Uh, and, uh, and basically it said uh, the reason why uh, it can't be released is because. So in, in, in June this year, uh, the, the Ombudsman said that uh, it, it uh, would uphold the government's refusal to release the contract or the contracts. As it found, the Ombudsman that has found that releasing the contracts, plural, uh, would risk compromising the government's ability to secure agreements to purchase COVID-19 vaccines. Well, how could that be? Well, are they buying, still buying more, are they, or what? I mean, I don't know why that's, I don't know why that would be the case or that reason is valid when when surely the bulk of the uh, purchasing has now been completed. And, in fact, if they've taken all, away all the COVID, a lot of the COVID restrictions, or, ha or have they, I suppose, uh, you know, surely that, that reason uh, doesn't, doesn't now stack up. But that was what the Ombudsman has ruled, um, and the only way to... Only way to now, I think, um, try and get a ruling to override that would be to the High Court under judicial review, I imagine. But that might be what somebody does. I, I don't know. So what could but, um, what what could jeopardise the purchase of future vaccines? Um, what are there, is there some sort of discount that we get if we don't talk about the details, reveal the details? I mean, there'll be there'll be a reason for that. You know, if if when, uh, hopefully not. But there's another, you know, similar. Uh, H1N1 type virus that's circulating around the world. It won't be called COVID-19. You know, it'll be called something different, obviously. Bird flu, swine flu, H1N1. So he's been quite specific there in his um Yeah, yeah, it's, it's quoted. Would risk compromising the government's ability to secure agreements, plural, to purchase COVID-19 vaccines. So you can only imagine from that the government has an intention in the future to potentially purchase more. Or that's what they told him, but that's not the true story. Yeah, all that, yeah, sure. Which I suspect they, is a possibility. Yeah, but the Ombudsman did decide uh, that or did order the Ministry of Health to publish a summary. So uh, one of the things in the, in the summary that, that was released uh, referred to the indemnity that we provided in the, in the in, in the South African contract. We know that the indemnity there was wide-ranging, that Pfizer was indemnified. The South African government indemnified Pfizer for any sort of injuries in relation to the vaccine. But in this summary here, the New Zealand one, um, it noted that even if the indemnity was not given, 
uh, either the vaccines weren't safe, it wouldn't matter because ACC under the existing scheme would cover injuries. Yeah, but they're not. Yeah. Uh, well, well, they've refused some, of course. Yes, they have. Well, yes. the vast majority, it seems. Yes, potentially. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I haven't got the numbers. Well, that's um, the anecdotal, anyway. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the summary also says um, that. Uh, the for the vaccines that gained MedSafe approval, the government agreed to accept a certain amount of risk regarding long-term effects and efficacy of the vaccines, including associated adverse effects, before full long-term data was provided to MedSafe, demonstrating acceptable safety, efficacy, and and quality. Uh, so uh, you know um, that's you know, but remember you know the wording that we were all told safe and effective. Um, so these vaccines were available for full MedSafe approval. We were told it's safe and effective. And the Ombudsman summary from the Pfizer contract says uh, essentially that the government was prepared to take that small risk before, not even a small risk, quite a large risk, I would have thought. Um, and remember the word aspirational too. It was an aspirational, um, aspirational yeah. therapy or treatment. So hope, um, hope and pray, Paul, hope and pray. Okay, that's yeah. it. So look, there could be more to come on that, and as I say, that's a seven-page summary of what the contract says. I'm not, not you know, there's nothing new there. That pretty much um, people who have been following this this news have known over the last couple of years, anyway. Well, I just remember again. I've mentioned it a few times before that when the price was discovered per dose <clears throat> two years ago and was um, leaked out in the media, the comment from the now prime minister was he hoped. Pfizer wouldn't be too upset about that information getting out. So there's something hanging over them, Nick, is what I'm saying. Uh, well, yeah, mate, not maybe. I mean, uh, again, the summary uh, confirmed that 1.3 billion was spent uh, on um, COVID-19 vaccines. When you add that to the 500 million on rat tests, wow. Yeah. Okay. Two, two, two billion dollars, yeah. Yeah, crazy with a checkbook, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. All right, before we get to um, talking about uh, what happened um uh, well, anyway, the fallout from OIAs after the Albert Park March 25th um, shamozzle. British Airways pilot banned from flying for refusing to wear COVID mask loses discrimination case. What the hell is this? So British Airways pilot, he, it was a he, um, refused to uh, to wear a mask uh, on, on the plane and he was um, told that his services, you know, basically were no longer required then to, to fly British Airways. He took a discrimination case uh, against British Airways, um, basically saying that he had, you know, um, he well, he was a sovereign being who has a right to breathe freely and he didn't have to wear a mask, shouldn't have to wear a mask, and that masks were basically scientifically ineffective anyway. Uh, and he didn't want to be subject to, to arbitrary and pointless uh, rules in his employment. Uh, so he, he took a case against uh, his employer, British Airways, uh, interestingly, the tribunal said that, you know, basically, look, those arguments may well be the case. You may well have a right to uh, breathe uh, the air freely, except the people around you and your passengers also have a right not to be to, to, right to life, basically, and that the, the failure by him to wear a mask could cause the death of one of his passengers. <laughs> um, yeah. So so they ruled essentially that uh, that right to life uh, trumped or overruled his right to not wear a mask. Um, and, you know, I was reading that this morning, uh, or last night, I should say, uh, and I, can't, I coined the phrase that they obviously thought he had death breath. Death right? breath, yeah. Death, yeah. death, death breath. You yeah. know, so 
Um, like a green, sulfury, sort of yellowish, sort of haze coming out of his his mouth every time he breathed. It would, I don't know, dissolve metal and anything in its the flight controls. The death breath, <laughs> the death, death breath pilot. So, yeah, yeah. sadly, he's, sadly, he's lost his uh, lost his case. Now, not the be- I don't look. It's a very low level uh, employment tribunal um, in in the United Kingdom, so not the greatest authority in the world. Uh, will will this pilot take it further? Uh, I don't know, but um, you know, again, you know, we talked, you know, we talked about uh, the inherent difficulty with conflict of rights that uh, the law has quite often. You know, in some weeks ago, we talked about that teacher who refused to refer to one of the students as uh, by by the transgender identity, and he did so on the basis of strong religious grounds. Um, well, our Bill of Rights, of course, says that you have the right to religious freedom and you can express your religious freedoms as you like. But in this case, of course, those religious freedoms were not, and those religious rights were not as strong uh, as, as that boy's right and the school's right to tell him he couldn't do it. And so, uh, or couldn't have those views, and the same thing we're seeing here, I have the right not to wear a mask. Well, maybe you do, actually, and that's probably quite, there it is over there on the left-hand side of this Bill of Rights. But on the other side of the Bill of Rights is, is, is the right for the people not to not to die from your uh, death breath. So, look, it's um, you know. Yeah, but that's the natural state. You're not born with a blooming mask on. Well, <laughs> that's right, and um, and uh, pe- people, you know, have have had viruses and flus and colds for hundreds of millions of years. Death have, breath have, has been around for a long time. Death breath has been around for hundreds of millions of years, and no one, you know, people aren't dropping dead as a result. In fact, the world population is growing. Yes, you know. <laughs> so, maybe anyway. in an appeal you'd want to uh, mention that. All right, that's uh, that's crazy stuff. Let's uh, finish on this now. Official Information Act re- requests or replies revealed that police knew how many trans activists would attend the Posey Parker rally and apparently did nothing. The main police liaison officer was a trans woman, Rona Stace. So, the to summarise quickly, get your comment on. Number one, the police knew there was going to be a big noisy mob. Specifically, they knew that definitely 500 and possibly up to 2,000 would attend. So they knew that, Nick. They knew it. Uh, you know, 2,000 is a lot of people. Uh, 500, maybe not so much. So they knew well in advance that there could potentially be a, a decent number of, of, of angry, potentially, or certainly protesters here. Um, so again, you know, um, we talked in one of our very first shows about the uh, police um, lack of preparation for the parliamentary protest that you know, ended in, uh, in February uh, 2022, I think it was, wasn't it? So, um, or March 2022. So, again, here uh, it looked like a complete lack of planning, whether it was intentional or unintentional. Um, you know, I guess that the... Um, if you're uh, a little bit suspicious of the police's intent here, you might say it was an intentionally uh intentionally lack lack planning um or the, uh, the other view of course is that well no they just kind of um were a bit flippant with their um with their or planning. sided sided with one side well and th- and that's what some of these some of the oao release potentially says that they didn't really care that uh 2000 uh you know uh, a trans and, and, and pride activists were going to be there to shut down posey parker in fact the oao release actually says that they uh, they knew, the police knew that these 2,000 or so intended to turn up with megaphones, uh, making a lot of noise to drown out whatever Posey Parker had to say. 
So, um, you know, they, you, you, you know, did, did they encourage that behaviour by standing off and doing nothing? Well, of course, that's the allegation in front of the IPCC. The police were to stand between the two crowds and the gap between the fencing. They did not. They didn't. Yeah. No, they didn't. Uh, and the, the planning documents that were released said that that was what they were going to do to separate the two parties who were in attendance, the women's rights groups, and then obviously the, the trans and the pride um, and lesbian groups. Uh, we would stand there uh, in there um, just to make sure that they didn't attack each other, I suppose, to keep the peace, which is what the police are meant to do. Uh, it's their fundamental role, uh, but they but they didn't do it, no. Okay, and then, let's get back to it. Then an AGP policeman, now AGP, just for the folks out there, autogenophilia, AGP, referring to, I'm looking here at the uh, wiki definition, a psychological condition in which a man, usually heterosexual, derives sexual or even romantic pleasure from the fantasy of being female, just so you know what that means, and that is the wiki dictionary um, meaning. Um, liaising in the liaising team for the Rainbow Groups and Mana Wahini Corridor, and uh, obviously a, a women's group, and the event organizers were not in the liaising team. That kind of tells us something, doesn't it? Yeah, well, well it does. Uh, and showing that uh, it, it does actually show that the police were not interested in one side of the, the um, protest here. And they were only interested potentially with siding with one particular group. And that brings me back to, you know, what when, when you enter police college, the first thing you do on the very first day, literally you're there as you're sworn in as a, as a police recruit and you take the police oath. And the police oath says that I, you know, Paul Brennan, swear I will faithfully and diligently serve His Majesty King Charles of New Zealand his heirs and successors, and the important words are to follow, without favour or affection, malice or ill will. Right. Uh, and, Pretty yeah, clear. Yeah, very clear. And you swear the oath in the same way that doctors swear the Hippocratic oath, you know, to... Well, um, do no harm. <laughs> do no harm, make sure their patients have got informed consent and the like. So police officers... Uh, you know, they. I, I've done it myself. You stand in this big room. There's about ninety of you, and you put your hand on the Bible, put in the ear or something. You go around the room, and you'll say this thing, and you say your name, and you say it, and then you're kind of sworn in as a police recruit, and that's what you swear to do. And it's just disappointing as an ex-police officer to to see uh, that you know um, potentially, prospectively, whatever that they were. Um, siding with one particular group here at that protest and not really protecting anybody but the others. I think on an earlier show we talked about uh, the IPCA and their investigation into the police handling of, of Parliament. So uh, 126 complaints were received um, for what happened at uh, at Albert Park. So the IPC, uh, IPCA investigation into, into policing that day, uh, the investigation announced in late July. So They'll have to find, well, on the surface anyway, that the police, what, broke their oath or could have? And what happens if they find that or won't they go there to, to there? No, no, I don't, I don't think that um, that's what the IPCA has jurisdiction to, um, to rule on. Uh, I think that oath is something that's internal. In other words, it's basically an employment um, oath that you serve between yourself as a constable and the police service as a whole. 
So, um, you know, that could well be, it could well be that if some of these officers um, were um, favouring, you know, one part of this protest and not other, and not the other, not protecting, not protecting the peace and making sure people were safe. Um, Paul, you, you, I know you like that word. Uh, then, I do. You know, thank you. Could the police hierarchy, could the police hierarchy then go to these individual officers and say, "Well, we're going to now um, instigate internal um, complaint process against you because that's against the oath that you swore whenever you you were." Um, sworn in as a police constable, I I think that would be too far, too far to um, to, to believe, or too much of a stretch to think that would happen. But um, uh, look, it'd be interesting to see if the IPCA mentions that at all. To be honest. Yeah, well, um, I've got a quote here from Morning Report with the IPCA chair, Judge Kenneth Johnston, telling that program. The complaints were from people who attended the rally. Others were instigated by media reports. There are serious complaints that need to be looked into. So it sounds like, well, that sounds kind of serious in attitude. And I think uh, another Radio New Zealand um, story that the the uh, IPCA chair said that the, the crux of the complaint seems to be a lack of preparation and lack of expectation about the nature of the protest against Ms. Parker. Well, the OAA shows that they knew 2000 would attend. Yeah, uh, and a lack of preparation. Well, they were prepared because they were prepared to stand between the two sets of protesters, uh, between the two crowds in the gap between the fencing, but they did not do that. So, you know, they, they, these um, the, the, their documents show that they kind of had perhaps the right planning around keeping a lot more peace and was kept on the day, but just for some reason decided not to implement that plan. All right, we'll see what happens there. Nick Kearney, thanks for being or flying solo on our legal hub for this Wednesday. Um, Katie, I think we'll be back next week. Never, never a shortage of issues, right? Never. No, no, my pleasure. And have a good body, and we'll talk next week. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.